If you were to define the Christian faith in one or two sentences, what would you write? If you were to define Christianity in one to two sentences, what would you write? Now, if you're smart and or lazy, you might just say, well, the Apostle Creed has it covered. The Nicene Creed has it covered. And you're right. Those are good and true and, and tested statements, summaries of the, the, the scriptures. But that would be cheating because I'm asking you to write it. What would be in there? What would be at the heart of those two sentences or three, if I was generous, that define the Christian faith? <clears throat> well, today we're going to see what Jesus thinks about that very question. Would you stand with me and open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke? This is on page 605 in your paper pew Bible, uh, chapter 18, uh, chapter 18 of Luke, verses 31 through 34. Again, Luke 18, verses 31 through 34. And taking the 12, he, that is Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you for your word. I echo Pastor Kent's prayer. May your word go forth through me, your servant, and may it bear fruit in our lives so that we might be both hearers and doers of your word. And may you receive all the glory for it. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the title for today's sermon is simply Jesus at the Crossroads. Jesus at the Crossroads. And our outline in your, in your bulletin has four major points. Going up to Jerusalem, the paths of the prophets, the ascent to the cross, and the road less traveled. And we will follow that outline together. Well, Jesus, if you remember, has just comforted Peter and the apostles and the disciples. You know, they, Jesus, we've given up everything. And Jesus said, don't worry. There are rewards for you in eternity. And having just comforted them, he, he then speaks to the 12 alone and says, come, come here. So you can imagine, again, this is a large crowd probably following Jesus and the, the, the 12 are closest. And then you have those, those disciples who are also very near and dear to Jesus' heart. And then you have uh, the, the crowds. And so Jesus wants a word with just the 12. Now, if you're new to the Christian faith or you haven't read the Bible much, you may have forgotten about the 12 because it's, it's been since chapter nine since they've been mentioned. It's been a long time since Jesus has mentioned and Luke recorded the 12 apostles. <clears throat> Last we met them, they were distributing the bread and the fish. Remember, there was massive crowds that were following Jesus, and they needed to feed them, and Jesus did a miracle. And each one of those 12 apostles remembers the 12 baskets left over, one for each of them to remind them of God's power and provision. So it's those 12 apostles that Jesus pulls aside, not sure how he does it, but they're in close so that they alone can hear. And that highlights for us the importance of what Jesus is going to say next. The utter importance of what is going to come off his lips next. And what do they hear? 
Well, we just read it. Verse 31. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. So first, Jesus reminds them where they're going. It's understandable if the 12 forgot. I mean, if the Gospels record, and of course they record accurately, I'm sure there's some things they skip, so to speak, some of the mundane events of life, but it doesn't seem like Jesus ever has a dull day with his apostles and his disciples, does it? So we can forgive them if all the activity and the miracles and the people they've met has driven out where they're going. But Jesus has never forgotten where he's going. And where he is going, where they are going with him, is to Jerusalem. See means pay attention, wake up, hear me. Now they're going up to Jerusalem literally and figuratively. We know that they're on the road to Jericho. We we know that because in in a couple verses, in, in verse 35, it says, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. That's next week's sermon. And then in another week after that, we read in chapter 19, one through two, he that is Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. So they're on their way to Jericho, but Jericho is uh, uh, several feet below Jerusalem. So they are literally ascending an elevation up to Jerusalem. But even more importantly is the significance of the city of Jerusalem. That's why they're going up to Jerusalem, because it is not just any city. It is the city of David, the city where God dwelled in his temple. Jerusalem isn't just another famous city like Rome or Machu Picchu or Constantinople. It's the city tied to God's promises over and over in the Old Testament. And so the way to Jerusalem is therefore, no surprise, paved by the path of the prophets. Our second point, taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. Now remember, the son of man is Jesus. And that reference is first found in the book of Daniel, a prophet. And Daniel writes, chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like, here it is, a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, Yahweh, and was presented to, before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. James Edwards in his gospel commentary notes that Jesus is the only one to ever refer to himself as the son of man. It's his most popular title for himself. And it's interesting to note that no one ever takes offense. And there are other times that the Pharisees want to rend their garments over things that Jesus says about himself. But it's clear to us that it was unclear to the Pharisees and to that that generation, what really was meant by the Son of Man. They didn't get it fully. They didn't understand fully the idea of the Son of Man. But it is indeed the most prominent reference to Jesus, who also, we know, happens to be the Son of God. But I digress. So Jesus telling his disciples, come here, we're going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about me, the Son of Man, by the prophets, will be accomplished. Now, it would be a wonderful time of study for us if we were to trace every prophecy in the Old Testament and how they they point to Jesus. 
It, it would be like the most amazing mosaic you've ever seen or, or the most masterful weaver of cloth following those threads. But we don't have time. It would take us hours. That's how many prophecies there are pointing to Jesus in the Old Testament. And that's perhaps why Jesus doesn't quote any one particular, but rather references them all. For they would have been there all day too. We remember the Jewish scriptures, friends, refers to the prophets in a broader way that you and I do. We often think of the, the major prophets and the minor prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, we just referenced, the minor prophets, Habakkuk and, and, and Malachi and some of those, you know, larger, smaller. But, but in the Old Testament idea of prophet, Abraham was a prophet. Moses, of course, was a prophet. Joshua was a prophet. David, and the list goes on. So that's how much of the Old Testament, friends, is referring or pointing to Jesus. The prophets are pointing to Jesus. So the question then for us isn't which prophecies, but what do they say? What do these prophecies of the Old Testament say will come to pass? And this is what Jesus shares with his most trusted disciples, his 12 apostles. In short, that path of prophecies in the Old Testament ascends to the cross. Verse 32, read with me. For he, that is Jesus, the son of man, will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked, will be shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Each of the gospel writers records some semblance of this prediction. Now this, of course, remember, this isn't Jesus looking forward by his, by his God-given uh, prophetic ability, but this is Jesus looking backward to look forward. He's summarizing the prophets, saying what will happen in the very near future. After Jerusalem comes, after Jericho comes Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem comes the cross, and after the cross comes the empty tomb, which we've been singing about this morning. But to a student of the Old Testament, it, it sounds like Jesus might be pointing to just the prophet Isaiah. And I, this won't be on your, your screen, but if you know the book of Isaiah, you remember the prophecy concerning what's called the suffering servant. And I'll just read a couple excerpts. This won't be on your screen, but I want you to listen, just like the church of old would listen to the reading of God's word. Behold, this is Isaiah 52, my servant shall act wisely and shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of a children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle with blood many nations. He grew up before them like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that should look at him and no beauty that should desire him. But he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief as one, as one, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So Isaiah 52, 53. This side of the cross, we realize that Jesus is the culmination of four major strands of prophecy. 
the Son of Man, the Messiah, the prophet greater than Moses, and the suffering servant. While it's all there in, in our eyes to see, it wasn't, we couldn't understand it until God revealed it to us through his Son in the, in the, in the incarnation. Jesus, looking back to go forward, gives us seven things that will happen. And we will read these and remember these the next several weeks until we celebrate the resurrection. Because that's the seventh point. The first is he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. The Messiah, the Savior of Israel, will be humiliatingly delivered over to the Gentiles. Judas will help. The high priests will gladly give him over to Pilate. Two, he'll be mocked. Three, he'll be shamefully treated or insulted, cursed. Horrible things will be said about Jesus. Four, he'll be spit upon. One of the most degrading things you could do to anyone in an ancient Near Eastern culture was to spit upon them. Five, he'll be flogged. And unless, not to be too graphic, but friends, they beat Jesus so that Isaiah 52 and 53 would prove true, that we could barely recognize him, his face, his back, his sides. There wasn't much skin left. And he will be killed. That's number six. And seventh, and best of all, on the third day he will rise. And again, Jesus is saying, this is what the prophets have been pointing to all along. Seven times, In Luke's gospel, Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. And this is the seventh. Seven times, Jesus says, I am going to suffer and die. Three times, and this is the third, he says almost the exact same words that we read in verse 31. Seven times, Jesus alludes to his coming death. And now Jesus gives us the seven parts the prophets have pointed to in his suffering and in his death and resurrection. It can be said, and Jesus will, in Luke 24, that the whole Old Testament points to him and to these events. Verse 34, the road less traveled. But they, the apostles, the twelve, understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. You may be thinking, Jesus, should you have picked some different men? Should you have picked some of the men or the women to hear? Because clearly the 12 didn't get it. But, but don't miss the divine passive here. But they understood none of these things. This saying was, that's passive, hidden from them. Past tense. In other words, God is the author behind the hiding. It is God's sovereign hand that hides from the 12 an awareness, an understanding of what they've just heard. So it wasn't their fault. It wasn't that they were in sin or or ignorant. They couldn't understand because God had not revealed it to them. So two two takeaways from this. One, we we are dependent to understand the meaning of the cross. We, humanly speaking, cannot understand the cross of our own wisdom, of our own minds. Even on that, we are dependent upon God's Grace, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one 
may boast. And here the, the gift of God is not only the act of Jesus on the cross, but the faith, the grace that gives us the faith to even believe it. Both are a gift of God, lest we could boast. I was smart enough. I figured it out. Now there's no room for boasting. Two, God can be trusted in his timing. God doesn't allow them to understand at this moment, but as we'll see in several weeks in Luke 24, Jesus sits down with his, his apostles and his disciples and he tells them and explains everything. Walking through the whole Old Testament, showing them how the strands all point to him. Sometimes we can't understand before, it's better after. Jesus is preparing his apostles for what they cannot understand yet, but will need to understand shortly after his death. And that is, friends, that the cross and the resurrection needs to be at the heart of our definition of what Christianity is about. J. Gresham Machen, this is the, uh, it just was recently the 100th anniversary of his book called Christianity and Liberalism. J. Gresham Machen was a, a very uh, gifted and godly Presbyterian pastor, and uh, it would have been in the 20s that there was a growing rift in theology among pastors and theologians. There was a growing liberal interpretation of scripture. And by liberal, uh, they used to mean uh, robust and, and, and well-rounded, but, that, but today we mean it more in the sense that the, the, his book does, which is to say not orthodox, influenced by something other than scripture, dangerous. And, and the introduction to the book, uh, I think it's uh, Kevin DeYoung writes, perhaps the most important part of the book is right in the title, Christianity and liberalism. And the book really expounds that point that there isn't a conservative Christianity and a liberal Christianity, but rather there is Christianity or there's not. In other words, a liberal Christianity that removes the cross isn't Christianity. It's something else. It's actually a different religion disguised. It's like a wolf disguised in sheep's clothing. There's Christianity and there's liberalism. And the two could not be further apart. For they disagree on the cross. They disagree with Jesus. They may find other things that are very true. Jesus certainly came to teach us moral lessons. Absolutely. Jesus certainly came to teach us how to serve. But at the heart of the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament, is that cross behind me. Let me read Jay Gresham's own words on this subject. <clears throat> Liberalism, he says, finds salvation, so far as it's willing to speak of it, in man. Christianity finds it in the act of God. According to Christian belief, Jesus is our savior, not by virtue of what he said, not even by virtue of what he was, by what he did. He is our savior, not because he has inspired us to live the same kind of life that he lived, but because he took upon himself the dreadful guilt of our sins and bore it instead of us on the cross. That is the heart of the Christian message. The cross lies at the heart of the gospel. Paul, the apostle, knew this. And as he's 
reminding the Corinthian church of this very struggle that you and I feel today. They felt back then too. And his words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 25 are just as true today as they are back then. He writes, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So for Jews, the Messiah being crucified by the Gentiles was crazy. They just couldn't, they, they couldn't get over that. How could God be put on a cross? And to the Greeks, it just seemed silly. Well, what's the point? This is a weak God. Why would you follow him? And in our day and age, you could replace Jews with religious people. Religious people like the Jews don't want Jesus on the cross. They, they want to earn their salvation by their wisdom, by their morals, by their, 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 their civic virtue. They don't want to humble themselves at the foot of the cross. And, and, and we might replace Gentiles or Greeks with, with secular people. What's the point of the cross? What, there's not really sin. We're all good, generally speaking. We're just misdirected. No, the cross stands in between both and says there is sin and its punishment is death. And the good news is there's a savior who came to save anyone who would put their lives in his hands. Will you today? Will you sing what we sang earlier this morning? Here in the death of Christ, I live. Friends, it is easy to believe, but there is a cost. The cost is your life. Will you lay it down? Will you give it to Jesus and trust it to him this morning? And thereby live through him who has paid for your sins. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to your cross and some of us are stumbling. We don't want to admit how badly we need you to save us. We're still clinging to our self-worth. We're still clinging to our image of ourselves. Humble us, break us, show us our profound sin in light of your beautiful holiness. And for some of us, we, we don't want to believe that there is such a thing as sin because it means we can't be the authors of our lives. We can't live as we see fit. We have to bow to someone greater. And we, on Facebook and social media, we put it out there like, like life is great, living it to the full, but we, we're really just masking our miserableness. Jesus, through your spirit, show, show us who don't need you as a savior, our profound need. And Lord, for those of us who have wept at the cross and have seen you pick us up, not because of our merits, but because of your son's, Oh, help our hearts to sing all the more this morning and this week and grant us boldness to tell others the good news so that they too might be saved from this generation. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.